Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. Well, good morning, church. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those. Acts chapter 17 this morning. And uh, we're going to finish up that chapter. And uh, before we do that, I'd like to welcome our new members. We do have the Haynes family coming to join us. They uh, came to membership class uh, a few weeks ago, gave their testimonies. We had a great time discussing uh, their testimonies and our doctrine and what we believe. And so um, I'd like to recommend Ryan, Rachel, Elena, Colin, Clayton, and Colton to the family. And so uh, I make a motion. Do I hear a second? All right. All those in favor, will you say I love you? All right, and that is our call to love one another, and so welcome to the family, and uh, we've, we've enjoyed getting to know you over the last few weeks, and look forward to all the rest of the time. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16 through 34, um, evangelism in a culture of idolatry. Uh, now, as we left off last week, we've got Paul, he's traveling, and he's, he's going to Athens now, and he's going to wait on Silas and Timothy to show up. So it says in verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now right there is just a a picture of ruins there in Athens, Greece. Now can you imagine what Athens, Greece would have looked like in Paul's time? I mean, this is a place of rich history of Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, you got the Parthenon there. You've got all kinds of temples. You've got all kinds of idols, all kinds of things that are leading these people towards uh, an intelligence and a worshiping. And uh, his spirit is provoked. What an interesting word, uh, provoked. It's a word that we struggle to translate, to be honest with you. Uh, our, our best guess is that it's deeply distressed. And this, this word actually does show up in the Old Testament um, in the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so in Isaiah chapter 65, we see the same word, verses 1 through 3. It says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. Verse 3, listen to this. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making idols of bricks. This is what the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah. Look, the people, they provoke me to my face with their idolatry. I mean, idolatry is it's not a joke. It's not cute. It's not innocent. It's not culturally acceptable. It's literally a slap and a holy God's face. And so it provokes him. And so this is the same verbiage that is used as Paul walks through Athens and he sees all of these different idols and all of these different temples. He's provoked. He's grieved. I I don't know if you realize this, but we live in a culture of idolatry. Now, we're not walking up and down the street seeing all kinds of temples and all kinds of statues and people worshiping statues and doing things like that, not totem poles. But we're in a culture of idolatry. We're in a culture that worships all kinds of things. As you walk through the streets of our culture, 
Are you provoked? Are you deeply grieved? Or has it become so ordinary that you just look right past it? He was grieved when he saw the idolatry. What is an idol? Tony Maria says it this way, an idol is anything to which we turn when we need something only Jesus can provide. Idols aren't just statues worshipped at shrines. They are substitute gods and functional saviors that supplant the true and living God in the human heart. Idols can take the form of the need of peer approval, the relentless pursuit of success and money, the drive for sex, pleasure, or food, all consuming allegiance to a sports team, to the pursuit of education, or maybe even show an obsession with an individual. When we look at idolatry in those terms, and we look at our culture, we, we live in a culture of idolatry. So what does evangelism look like in a culture of idolatry? Idolatry happens anytime we take a created thing and we elevate it above the creator in our heart. Anytime we take a created thing and we elevate it in our heart above the creator. It's when we find a created thing to be our preeminent source of joy, satisfaction, and identity. When we find something or someone that gives us ultimate joy in our heart, gives us our identity, gives us our greatest satisfaction above God, it's idolatry. And idolatry simply reveals the unhealthy state of the human heart. As John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol factory, always looking to latch on to something else for joy, satisfaction, and identity. And really what happens is, is when we latch on to those things, we destroy them. And the reason we destroy them is because they will never, they will never be our ultimate source of joy. They will never be able to satisfy us. They will never be a secure manner in which we can find our identity. And if, if it's a person, you'll destroy that person, try to make them your God. If it's a kid, you'll ruin that kid, treating them like a God. If it's a sports team or an attitude or an action, it'll one day not fulfill your heart. You see, our hearts are constantly drawn towards lowering our love of an invisible God and elevating our love for physical things. We find ourselves always fixating on what we can see. What's an idol? John Piper says it this way. What is an idol? Well, it is the thing. It is the thing. It is the thing loved or a person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you are following or a sport or your immaculate yard. Anyone have an immaculate yard? I sure don't. Man, it's rough, especially this time of year. What is it? It's the thing. What's your thing? When I ask you that, what's your thing? What is it that so captures your heart that you find joy, satisfaction, even your identity in it? Man, if this thing was gone, I don't know, I don't know if I would survive. 
I don't know what I would do without it. I don't know what I would do without this person. We live in a culture of idolatry where we fixate our hearts on so many things and we, we devalue our love of God who is invisible and we fixate on things that are visible. This is what provoked Paul as he walked through Athens. Behind every sin problem, behind every relational problem, and every personal problem is a profound worship problem. Our hearts have been drawn to something else. Someone once said, if you can get the first commandment, you can get all of them. Right? If you can get the first one, you can get them all. So Exodus chapter 20 says this. I got on the, I got on the screen, 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here it is. You shall, love, you shall have no other gods before me. If you can get that one, you can get the rest. You shall have no other gods before me, beside me, next to me, whatever you want to put there. No other gods. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations, to those who hate me, but show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. If you can keep the first, you can keep the rest. What's your thing? What is that thing that you fixate your heart on? You see, if we have God as first, then we won't replace him with creative things, idols, graven images, people, if God is first in our hearts, we won't take his name in vain. Now, a lot of us, when I say don't take the Lord's name in vain, you think, yeah, don't say bad words with God's name in them, right? Don't say that. Even, even the Hebrews, they had such a respect for God's name, they wouldn't even say it. They would just write it. Oh, don't, don't say it. You might say it wrong. But the word take is also translated carry. So what if I were to say to you, don't carry the Lord's name in vain? What does that mean? It's a different connotation, isn't it? Don't carry the Lord's name in vain. It means don't represent the name of the Lord in vain, fruitlessly, pointlessly, empty, wasted. Listen, if there's other things in your heart that you've seen to be superior, you'll end up carrying his name in vain. You'll end up putting him on the back burner and be like, yeah, but this thing, this is the thing. And we'll see a fruitless life because all of life is one of worship. All of life is one of carrying his name. You see, sin issues are worship issues. Matthew 15, 8 through 9, Jesus said this, This people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Oh, it's easy to be religious. We're about to read it here in just a minute. I see that you're religious in every form and fashion. That's what Paul would say. I see that you're very religious. I see that there's a lot of people that are religious. A lot of people who talk about commandments and talk about, oh, don't do this, don't do this, you better do this, don't do this. Where are their hearts? Is God really first? Is God really the, the supreme love of their life? Was there a thing? All of the life that we live is one of worship. Col Colossians 3, 
17, Paul writes, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything you do, everything you do, every word and every deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Not in vain, not fruitlessly, not empty, but in love. Supreme love, because God is number one in your heart. God is first in our hearts. We'll remember to keep the Sabbath, to honor the sacrifice that Jesus made that gave us freedom, that the work is finished on the cross, that we can enter into a Sabbath rest, that we can set aside a time of rest to worship God because he is holy. He's got first place in our heart. We will honor him by honoring our father and our mother, by showing the respect that is due. We will show that God is first in our hearts when we don't murder. You're like, oh, finally, one. Man, I got that one. I was starting to get a little nervous, get a little worried. Jesus shows up, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You can flip over real quick if you like. I will get to Acts, I promise. He says, you've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable of the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Wow. We came here to worship, didn't we? Corporate worship. Let me tell you, if there's hate in your heart, it's a worship issue. It's a worship issue. How can you say that Christ is supreme in your heart and yet hold hate in your heart towards someone? And if you know that someone's got odd against you, you don't just go, yeah, whatever. Forget them. No, you leave your gift at the altar and you say, my heart's in the wrong place. There's a, there's a heart issue. There's a worship issue. And I, I know God wants me to get this right. And listen, reconciliation, it takes two, but repentance takes one. And sometimes we go and we just repent. Look, I know what I did was wrong. I sinned against you and I sinned against God and I'm... I just want my heart to be right. If God's first in our hearts, we won't commit adultery. Relationship issues or worship issues. He goes on in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. says this, You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. I mean, every... Every time that you just let that, that look linger longer than it should, every time that you let your mind go where it shouldn't go, every time that you fixate on something and you worship the image, the created one, the one that's created, it's idol worship. It's idolatry. It's spiritual adultery is what Scripture would say because they're both forms of unfaithfulness. Hosea He equates this to straight up whoredom is what he says. My people inquire of a piece of wood, Hosea 4.12, and their walking staff gives them oracles. 
for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. Wow, that's some strong language. We read some strong language this week. If you're going through the, book, the Bible with us, the chronological Bible, Jeremiah 3, 6, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That, um, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? I mean, can I, can I just reiterate the fact that idolatry is not cute? It's not to be culturally acceptable. It's not to be okay. It's a slap in a holy God's face. And as Paul is walking through Athens and he's seeing idol after idol after idol on the high hills where they're making sacrifices and where they're making worship, he's like, this is horrible. He's grieved. Are you grieved when you walk through a culture of idolatry, church? If God's first in our hearts, we won't steal, we won't lie, and we won't covet. Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Covetousness, a strong desire to have more and more and more. A strong desire to have a love of things more than you have a love for God. To use those things for self-gratification until you've used them up and you don't find any gratification from them anymore. So you need the next bigger and better thing. It's really idolatry. We live in a culture of idolatry. And so how do you evangelize in a culture of idolatry where it's all around us? Well, let's pray. And then let's jump into God's Word, Acts chapter 17. Father, you're holy, and we are so sinful. We chase after created things as if they are going to satisfy us, and Lord, we are so repentant that we would so easily have our hearts drawn away from you, the Creator. In our worship today, God, let it not be in vain. Let it not be fruitless. Let it not be empty. But let us carry your name in a way that we honor and glorify you in every word that we say and every deed that we do, that we would be people who worship because we are madly in love with you. You have, you have won our hearts that nothing else can take your place. Father, forgive us when we let that thing, that person, sneak in. Father, give us a heart that is provoked, that is grieved, that sees this culture as you sees it, as you see it. Father, we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Evangelism. In a culture of idolatry, reasons with the religious indifference and skeptic ideologies. Religious indifference and skeptic ideologies. Picking up again, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting on them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? 
Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. So you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Stop right there. Paul conversed with religious indifference in a culture of idolatry. Religious indifference. Paul went to the places of worship. He went to the synagogue, and then he went to the marketplace. And for us to evangelize a culture of idolatry, we have to take the conversations about Christ out of the building and into the marketplace. We have to take it into places where people are going to have conversations. And he says that he reasoned with them. Hey, why, why is there such religious indifference in a culture of idolatry? Why is there not so much concern among those who are devout followers? I mean, I think we could ask the same question today. Why in a, why in a culture of idolatry does there seem to be such religious indifference to it? Christianity, as you may or may not have realized, is not at the center of our culture anymore. You see, the culture used to flow out of the church. Now, culture flows through the church, flows back into the church. So then the church begins to look more like the culture than the culture to look like the church. Before COVID, there was some research that was done by Pew Research, and it said this, that 85 million people in America had no interest or intention in going to a church service. 85 million people in America, no intention. That's before COVID. If we look at the statistics today after COVID has hit, it's far greater than that. If we are anything like the UK, we will soon follow their example. Before COVID hit, 70% of their population had no interest in attending a church service whatsoever. 70%. We live in a culture of idolatry. And in a culture of idolatry, we've got to face religious indifference by walking into the marketplace because not everyone's going to walk into the church. There's this thing called nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. They have no affiliation whatsoever with anything religious. And this group is growing. In America right now, one-fifth of our population would consider themselves of no affiliation religiously. Of those under the age of 30, under the age of 30, one-third, one out of three would say, I have no affiliation with anything religious whatsoever. Nuns. As we look at a culture of idolatry, we can see that there is religious indifference that needs to be reasoned with. Number two, Paul conversed with the skeptics, skeptic ideologies in a culture of idolatry. He was willing to engage in a conversation with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Can't say that word. Falafel, right? That's what it almost sounded like. Ideologies. That's a manner of thinking that characterizes an individual, a group, or a culture. And so you can't begin to even think or converse outside of that. Ideologies. This means that Paul was willing to talk to people outside of his worldview, outside of his belief system, outside 
with people who didn't agree with him morally or could I even say politically? You see, what we've done is we've drawn lines and we won't have conversations with people outside of our ideologies. I'm not talking to them. You know what they believe? You know who they voted for? You know what they think about masks? Do you know what they think about this? You know what they think? I mean, I could go on, am I right? If we're going to evangelize a culture of idolatry, we've got to be willing to have conversations in the marketplace with people who have different worldviews than us, people who have different ideologies than us. And we have to be willing to not be heightened in our emotions while doing so. Theologian Karl Barth said this, every ideology eventually becomes an idol that possesses us, determining our identity and guiding our actions. If we're not careful, our ideology can become our idol. Oh, but my ideology is right. Theirs is wrong. That can become an idol. And you know what that idol can do? It can become your object of worship that separates you from the church. Because you have then chosen your ideology over the unity of the body. Wow. We live in a culture of idolatry. The Epicureans. These people were materialists. These people were pleasure seekers. They would have the t-shirt that said YOLO on the back. Anyone still say that? No? You only live once. YOLO. Okay, so that's, that's so five years ago. I'm still, I'm still behind. The Epicureans, as R.C. Sproul says, developed the philosophy that we can call hedonism. We apply that term Epicurean to gourmet, gourmets who like the finest foods and wines. The philosophy of hedonism defines truth this way. Truth is found in the achieving of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Do you think there's any Epicureans today that find that their sole purpose is pleasure and the avoidance of pain? Okay, yes, that would be, that would be a yes. In simple terms, their creed was, if it feels good, it is good. Anybody live that way? Man, if it feels good, it's got to be good. If it feels right, do it. This is the, this is the thought process of a culture of idolatry. Like, let's, let's be more inclined to do what makes us feel good. He says, R.C. Sproul says, there has probably never been a more hedonistic culture on the face of the earth than the contemporary American. Stoics. Well, you got the Epicureans who are materialists, pleasure seekers. You've got the Stoics who are pantheists. They had a belief that there was a universal force that was in control of all things, and it is what it is. You ever heard someone say that? It is what it is. They believed in this force that was detached from humanity, that it was basically a source of everything physical and spiritual that was controlling all things. And they wanted to find this ultimate reality that lies behind all other physical things. Over time, these ancient philosophers pondered these questions. They came up with a term to describe this ultimate reality. And the term they came up with was logos. Have you heard of the term logos? The logos became this understanding of all of life. It gives meaning to all of life. 
This is why John would use this word in his gospel in the very beginning, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, was logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John would say, listen, you Stoics, you people who believe that there is a higher power. There's a lot of people today who believe, well, there's a, I believe there's a higher power. Let me tell you who the higher power is that holds all things together. It's Jesus Christ. And he came into the flesh and he lived the perfect life that we can't live. And he died the death we should have died so that we could have life and have it everlasting. He is the light and the life of men. Amen? Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This force, this higher being that the Stoics would have believed in, was actually holding their lives together at that very moment, and that is Jesus Christ holding all things together. Right now, all things are being held together by Christ. Our culture that we live in is a culture of idolatry, just like the one in Athens. You had Epicureans that might have said they were atheists. You had Stoics that might have said they were agnostic. The truth is they were worshipers. But who are they worshiping? Chesterton says this, when man ceases to worship God, does not, when he ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing. He worships everything. The second thing, evangelism, a culture of idolatry, proclaims the sovereign creator and the superiority of Christ. Let's keep reading there. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we, have, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul proclaimed the sovereign creator in a creation, in a culture of idolatry. Have you noticed in a culture of idolatry that that's one of the first things that's been attacked is that God is the creator? Because if you can remove God as creator, then you can remove his authority over your life. And so all of science and all of things that are going on, they're saying that, well, there's, there's not. They're simply trying to remove 
the authority of the creator over the created. He said, look, let me let you, let me let you know that every nation of mankind, every nation of mankind was created from one man. And in him, we find our being. Genesis 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. He created them so that they would know that they are created in the image of God, longing for him. The thing about that is that God is entirely independent. He doesn't need anything. Isn't that just a mind-boggling thought? He's completely independent, and you and I are completely dependent. But yet we want to be independent. Right now, you are completely dependent upon oxygen. If you like, you can hold your breath. Try to prove me wrong, right? I'd like to see that. That'd be good. We are completely dependent. We're dependent upon food. We're dependent upon water. There's certain things that we're just dependent upon that we cannot survive without, but God is completely independent, and he created all things. Therefore, he has authority over all things. Paul proclaimed the superiority of Christ in the culture of idolatry. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Paul wanted everyone in this culture of idolatry to find Jesus Christ because he's not far from you. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary writes about this wording that Luke uses, that they should seek God and find their way to him. He said, and perhaps fill their way. He said this wording came from the poet Homer and the well-known story of the Cyclops. And the story of the one-eyed Cyclops that captured Odysseus. In order to escape, escape, Odysseus got the Cyclops drunk and then jabbed him in the eye with a sharp stick, blinding him. So the Cyclops proceeded to seek and to feel his way through the cave to find him. Boyce says this, in our sin, we are as unseeing as the blinded Cyclops. We are simply going through life darkened by sin, feeling our way. And so Paul would say that God has placed you exactly where you are and exactly the time, exactly the place, so that perhaps in the blindness of sin, you would find God. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Listen, every single one of us, we live here right now in this community with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers for a purpose that we should perhaps feel our way and find God and help them in that process as well, that we would be those who are willing to evangelize in a culture of idolatry because God has placed people around us so that they would perhaps seek and find Jesus Christ, that their eyes would be opened and the darkness would be gone. Psalms 146.8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. In John 1, 5, 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul would say, listen, in a culture of idolatry, there are people placed in and around us at this particular time, in this particular culture, that they might, in the blindness of sin, find Christ. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And here's the last one. Evangelism in a culture of idolatry implores others to seek repentance and be sure of the resurrection. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they, were, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. You see what happened there? Some mocked, and some said, you know what? I'd like to hear more about this. When we engage a culture of idolatry and when we begin to tell them about Jesus Christ, some are going to mock. And some are simply going to say, hey, I'd like to hear more about this. I'd like to hear more about this. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It doesn't mean that God overlooked sin as if it didn't happen. Paul is simply saying, listen, it's by God's mercy he hasn't wiped you off the planet. It's by God's mercy that he has allowed you now in your intelligent state to now not be ignorant any longer in idolatry, but to know who Jesus Christ is and to find salvation. Because there's a day coming where he will judge. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. We know who that is because he has given us assurance by raising him from the dead, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison you did not visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison 
and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I read that to you to remind you of the fact that if you look at the world today, in a culture of idolatry, the vast majority of everyone you and I know will be judged apart from the covering blood of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the world of idolatry, we should be provoked, grieved by that. That there are people that we know, loved ones, friends, that are far from God, that stand under his judgment. And so as we enter into a culture of idolatry, I'm going to give you a closing three steps when engaging a culture of idolatry. First, discern inwardly before speaking outwardly. Discern inwardly before speaking outwardly. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Those of us who live in a culture of idolatry cannot pretend that we are not infected by the culture of idolatry. We should be ones who pray Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Today, we enter in here to worship. But let me tell you, we worship because of, a, of where our heart is, not because of where our, our bottoms are, right? Not because we're in this building. We worship because our hearts are drawn to a God that we love. So first, we discern inwardly before speaking outwardly too. Secondly, we desire a change, not just a pardon. Can I, can I just, how many times do we just want to pardon? How many times have you said, I'm sorry? You didn't really care. You just didn't want the consequence anymore. I just don't want to be, I don't want this holding over my head anymore. I'm sorry. Let's just move past it. How many times have we, in repentance, not desired change, just wanted to pardon. God, forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I shouldn't have done that. How many times do we not sincerely repent of the idols and the worship that's in our life? And thirdly, display compassion over contempt. Matthew 9, 36 through 38. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into the harvest. Church, let me tell you, as you look out into a culture of idolatry, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And the problem with evangelism and a culture of idolatry is because we're often not provoked to compassion. We pull back in contempt. We turn a blind eye and go about our business. Or we just simply roll our eyes in bitter and disgust. The harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. Church, we live in a culture of idolatry. So first, we need to discern inwardly before we speak outwardly. Can we pray?
Can we ask God to search our hearts this morning, to know our thoughts, to reveal to us anything that we've allowed into our heart that has superseded our love for him, and then repent, to actually desire a change, not just a pardon, and then to go. Go out of these walls, go out of these doors with his heart of compassion. Gracious Father, we come to you. Thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you're a God who loves us, who loves us enough to send your son that we would know that there is life and there's life everlasting. To know that there, it is impossible to keep the commandments. It is impossible to live up to the letter of the law. That's why you came. You lived the life that we couldn't live. So we surrender our lives to you again and again and again that our lives in word and deed would be lives of worship. Father, right now I pray you're this body of believers we would be the church, that we would be ones that are provoked, that we would be ones that would look at the culture that we live in and we would long for them to come to know you. God, that you would use us as a, as a mouthpiece. And God, today, that you would search us, that you would know our hearts. You would reveal to us any ways that have, that have been a slap in the face of your holiness. Father, we worship you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.